This episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast is brought to you by the folks at Shout Factory and G-Kids, the U.S. home of the Studio Ghibli catalog. You can save $20 by purchasing the brand new Ghibli six-film collection on Apple TV, which includes The Wind Rises, The Secret World of Arietti, The Cat Returns, Porco Rosso, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and The Castle in the Sky. If physical media is more your thing, you can get any of these films from your favorite online retailers, including the brand new Blu-ray of The Wind Rises. Thank you so much, and please enjoy the episode. everyone and welcome to an episode of the third impact anime podcast tonight we're going to be talking about the 1984 film nausicaa of the valley of the wind from a little known director you may or may not heard of hayao miyazaki uh, i am your host tobias of the valley of the wind and with me i have this is austin here to remind you to make sure to wear a mask it's a toxic jungle out there uh, it certainly is Takayaki absolutely. And also, we have... Sully, the blind, elderly, wise woman of the village. Thanks, Obaba. <laughs> Thanks, Obaba. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Nausicaa today here. This is an interesting film, since this is a Ghibli, I say in air quotes, film, but not actually a Ghibli film. Uh, this was directed by the infamous Miyazaki. However, you know, like everyone, he didn't just spring forth from the from the earth, from the toxic jungle, fully formed as an animator. Uh, he has a history, contrary to popular belief. Exactly. Uh, so, Austin, if you want to give us maybe a bit of a history on uh, Miyazaki and the production of this film, that'd be a good way for us to start off. Sure. Well, uh, the history of Miyazaki personally goes back to his work in the uh, 1970s for both Toei Animation and TMS. He worked on a bunch of mainly TV productions there. He worked on things like um, Future Boy Conan and Lupin Third, and uh, a couple more things. Sully, you were mentioning a few of the things he worked on before we started the podcast, uh, like things like Sherlock Hound and a few other things. So Miyazaki, kind of between Castle of Cagliostro and Nausicaa, he worked on Gigantor, and he worked on uh, Cobra, and he also worked on uh, Sherlock Hound, but he only directed the first six episodes, and on the other two, he was a key animator. So he really Mm -hmm. kind of was one of those people who, I guess you would call him like a working director, or a working animator, where they don't really have that sort of name brand recognition, but they work in television and they kind of, you know, don't really have much of a directorial print yet. Right. I would say that that probably came in around the time he did Future Boy Conan, if not Castle of Cagliostro. Right. I think with uh, with Lupin being brought in, I think on the like the third, the third, he and Takahata were sort of the third creatives brought in to do part one for uh, for Lupin the third. I think at that point they kind of trusted him a little bit, you know, up until the movie, of course. And I think by that point, he had proven his chops, for sure. 
exactly like uh, the Castle Cagliostro was the second Lupin the Third feature, and he was given uh, free directorial reign on that on that film. And if you you go back you go back and watch it now. Of course, we talked about this at length in our Castle Cagliostro podcast from a few years ago. But it is indistinguishably Miyazaki's style, or at least what would become known as Miyazaki's style, which is so weird because he feels like. It feels like, you know, watching this and then thinking about his whole career and also watching Nausicaa, it's like, man, the guy kind of had his style almost immediately. It's kind of weird to think about in that way. I also want to point out that he was, in fact, in 1981, the scene designer for Little Nemo and Slumberland before he and Takahata left the project because of... uh uh, creative differences on the Japanese side. Let's just say that. We're going to talk about that movie one day. It's terrible, and I'm going to make us watch it. Yeah, I, I think I watched that movie way too late in life. I watched it in, like, my last year of college, and I was just like, man, I am not feeling this. <laughs> See, I rented the VHS all the time as a kid. I did not like anything other than the fact it had clowns and it was a cartoon. <laughs> Yeah, it just got on my nerves. But anyway, yeah, that's for another podcast. But um, yeah, so um, around that time was whenever Toshio Suzuki met Miyazaki for the first time, I believe. Because uh, Suzuki had seen Castle Cagliostro, and he really, really enjoyed it. Of course, Suzuki would go on to be like the premier producer at Studio Ghibli, and is still there today. You know, he's been the producer on basically everything they've ever done from the very beginning. You know, the the two main figureheads of Studio Ghibli, of course, were always Miyazaki and uh, Isao Takahata, the late Isao Takahata. Um, but really, the third head of the Ghidorah, if you will, is to- um, Toshio Suzuki, and he does a lot of like their press press stuff and interviews and all that sort of stuff. But um. Around that time in the late 70s, uh, he was working for Animage. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's the anime and manga magazine from the time that's still going, I believe. It's a kind of an institution, kind of like Shonen Jump. But um, around that time, he met Miyazaki and said, Hey, you know what? You should, you sh- you're this Cagle- Castle Cagliostro movie, that was really good. So you should uh, pitch an anime idea to uh, Tokuma Shoten, who's the parent company of Animage. And, um, Miyazaki did. He had a few ideas, but none of them really worked out. And then Tokuma Shoten was basically like, well, we're not really feeling these anime ideas that you have right now, but what if you made a manga? And Miyazaki was like, I will make a manga. And then that manga ended up becoming uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. So it started out as a manga running in animage and ended up becoming really, really popular. It was one of their most popular, most read pieces whenever it started um, being published. So shortly after its popularity kind of got to a high point, Tokuma Shoten said, hey, why don't you adapt this work into a film? And Miyazaki was like, well, I don't really know. I mean, it's kind of going well in terms of the manga sphere, and there's a big story that I want to tell and all that stuff. But sure, I'll give it a go. So that's, that's kind of what they did there. And remember, just like what Tobias said earlier, this was pre-Studio Ghibli, so Miyazaki and Takahata didn't really have a a home studio to call their own that was theirs at the time. So they approached a studio that they had worked with before in the past on some Lupin the Third stuff, uh, Studio Topcraft, which if you're like a fan of old school anime or anime trivia or whatever, Studio Topcraft was the studio responsible for making not only Nausicaa, but also Macross, Do You Remember Love, that classic film. And they would also do a lot of work for uh, the American animation studio Rankin-Bass, so like a lot of those um, 
Christmas cartoons and the Lord of the Rings animated films from the 80s. Um, that was, uh, Studio Topcraft was highly involved in that. And in terms of sort of where the ideas for Nausicaa came from, you know, Miyazaki was very much writing this as sort of an expression of a lot of his anxieties around the 1980s Japanese economic boom, where like there was this huge explosion of wealth created out of technological innovation, but also like a lot of anxieties that came along with that. And that's kind of a a strange double-edged sword for Nausicaa because it's like a film like Nausicaa, you know, them at um, Tokuma Shoten and Topcraft taking a risk on a, you know, fairly unknown director to give him the ability to do a prestige work that is a totally original concept. That probably wouldn't have happened without the backdrop of the 1980s economic boom. But at the same time, it's a film about expressing anxieties about said boom that kind of made the film possible. So it's kind of interesting to uh, to think about it that way. That that's kind of where Miyazaki was coming from in terms of the creation of uh, of Nausicaa, both as a manga and as a film. I think when you mentioned the uh, the economic boom, there was also the Minamata Bay incident, where this fishing bay in Japan had been completely and totally polluted by mercury to the point that people were getting sick eating the fish. And this was something that really disturbed Miyazaki, but at the same time, it was like nature has this ability to keep on going no matter how much humans wreck it. Uh, the, the creatures that live in the bay, uh, they may be warped or changed, but they will survive, but humans cannot. And I think this idea of nature, nature finds a way, but humans have to kind of suffer for their hubris is a major theme we find in Nausicaa that kind of combines this economic anxiety, this sort of capitalist industrial anxiety with this environmental anxiety towards the idea of humans as impermanent and uh, sort of the creators of their own destruction. Yeah, and it kind of goes along with, you know, what I said a moment ago about how, because, like, Miyazaki establishes that that's something that he really cares about very early on in Nausicaa, like, Castle of Cagliostro is, is more of like a, like, I love this movie, but it's more of like a fluff piece. It doesn't really have much to say, quote unquote. Um, but Nausicaa very much has something to say. And it, the, the messages that Nausicaa has is really something that Miyazaki has infused in most of his work throughout his career. I think we really start to see those themes kind of come to fruition in, in Nausicaa because there are a few, you see a lot of his aesthetic uh, influences in Cagliostro, it kind of feels like a Miyazaki movie, but it doesn't necessarily, like you said, have the same sort of message, and I feel like what we have in Nausicaa is kind of the groundwork for every single movie he's done after it. For sure, yeah. And to kind of go over the generational gaps we sort of talked about earlier, uh, Takahata and Miyazaki were one of sort of like the first generation of, of anime uh, production to some degree uh, this is before anime was its own separate thing its own separate fandom you know we would have uh, the infamous Hideaki Anno sort of looked up to Miyazaki and work with him later but you know these people didn't have that sort of same sort of anime fandom they were the pre-otaku generation exactly there was no otaku thing for them to look into and you know sure science fiction was a big uh, deal as far as anime the beginning of anime but if you go and look back, Miyazaki's always talked about um, making films for kids and kids like films. So when you think about what we think of as anime, when you think about these modern studios and everything, 
Ghibli does sort of feel, and it's early, you know, Toei does sort of feel like Disney. It does sort of feel like um, these studios that are trying to make something that is both entertaining, but also has a message for children to follow. It's something that feels more high art than whatever Moe show is coming out this season. There's a degree of sophistication <laughs> right. that these films kind of have that make them accessible to children, but not... They don't speak down to children. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Uh, Mizaki said in interview sense that he, he really sort of looks down on the otaku culture, talking about how animators now don't know how to make good works because they don't know how people act. Uh, they're not used to looking at people. And I think that is something that Miyazaki's films, the Ghibli films as a whole, do embody is a very human aspect. Something that, you know, even admittedly as a fan of even modern stuff, I can kind of see where he's coming from when he says this. And looking at his background and Takahata's background, I think Takahata sort of came into this with actually a background, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but actually in literature and French literature in particular. Right. Both he and Miyazaki are very, very well read in terms of Western European literature. I mean, it's all over there. In any of their collaborations, you're going to find some reference to... Uh, something either French or English, especially, or or British, rather, is probably a more accurate term to use. We've kind of already s- discussed this with, like, Lupin Third and Sherlock Hound. I mean, both of those are, in one way or another, based on European, um, you know, series of fiction. And even, even Nausicaa has, you know, DNA shared with, like, The Lord of the Rings and, and classic British sci-fi. Um, it's sort of this melding of, like, Middle Earth meets, you know, post-apocalyptic. I mean, it's it's very much a sort of Japan meets European flavor to it. I mean, the costumes, the designs, the the way that the characters organize themselves, I think, kind of has that sort of high fantasy feeling. It kind of feels like a Zelda movie with, uh, you know, hang gliders and giant bugs. Yeah, Nausicaa directly ripped off Breath of the Wild. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's just because the movie is coming out now, but the first five minutes of watching this again, I was like, man, there's a lot of Dune I'm seeing here. <laughs> and not just the desert planet, but because it starts off saying this takes place in the far future where humanity has wrecked the world. You have this, it's it's fantasy, but it's sci-fi at the same time. you know. And I feel like Dune has that where, sure, it's sci-fi, but it's so far in the future that it might as well be Lord of the Rings-style fantasy to some degree. Before we get too into the weeds, do we want to take a second to say what the movie is actually about? Okay, sure, yeah. So as a brief synopsis of the film, uh, it opens up with the narrator saying, you know, this story takes place in the far future. Uh, technology was advanced so far that it's almost fantastic at this point. Uh, the world is being taken over slowly by this toxic jungle, or a sea of decay in the uh, the Japanese script. And you have these pockets of civilization that are trying to, you know, and deal with this encroaching, um, I don't want to use the word pandemic here for reasons, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but deal with this uh, encroaching ecological nightmare. Let's put it like that. Because that's, a so, much, that's so much better to say. If that's completely <laughs> unrelated to what we're going through either. Well, <laughs> this movie is super relevant. Well, Nausicaa has uh, giant bugs and poisonous <laughs> spores that are taking over. So once we get giant bugs, uh, <laughs> then maybe we can link a little more. I predict January. I'm not going to take that bet because <laughs> I believe it at this rate. <laughs> 
this the story sort of revolves around these pockets of civilization. Uh, you know, our, our main character, Nausicaa, the princess of the Valley of the Wind, uh, her her tribe, her her village is definitely more in tune with nature. They all wear very utilitarian clothing. And uh, we see her actually as it opens up in a scene where she's going into the toxic jungle, uh, fully masked up, and sort of harvesting parts off this giant carapace, this shed carapace of this big bug that we that they call the Om, the Omu. And she has sort of this, this deep reverence for this gigantic creature. And uh, very quickly we find back home that a, a large airship has crashed into the village and completely causing destruction. Everything's on fire. Uh, it was a carrier from a neighboring kingdom of Pejite. And they were carrying a giant, uh, a giant fetus, as it were, of this giant warrior that is sort of known in the history of this world as being the destroyer of the, of the worlds previous to this. Uh, we have this militaristic nation, Tolmechia, shows up in their uh, planes as well, taking the Valley of the Wind hostage, and including the princess. Uh, They're taking her back to sort of barter, I think, was the idea there, when they are shot down by a freedom fighter from Pejite, uh, descending into the, the toxic jungle itself. Uh, at that point... Uh, they discover that underneath this toxic jungle, there is a purified area where the trees have begun to purify the soil and the air, sort of righting the wrongs of humanity from the distant past. And as they attempt to race back home to let everyone know and, and try to defuse the situation with Tolmechia, uh, they are again kidnapped by Pejite, who has got a plan, just like Tolmechia, to sort of end the destruction by causing a huge stampede of the Omu, uh, destroying the Tolmekian forces and anybody else in their path. By the end of the film, we have this uh, this stampeding uh, herd of Omu racing toward the Valley of the Wind, destroying everything in their path. Uh, she shows up, once again displaying that uh, iconic uh, goodwill toward, toward them and toward nature. Uh, they're able to, she saves a, a small baby Omu, and uh, they end up running her over, where we find her almost dead. And through the power of friendship and the power of love, uh, the Omu stop rampaging. They re revive her, resuscitate her using their magic tentacles, and uh, everything everything turns out okay. Uh, and then "Power of Love" by Huey Lewis in the news plays. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and uh, that, yeah, that kind of resolves everything. The uh, they end up do the Tomekins do revive the the, uh, the giant warrior, and there's was one really cool shot where it has this huge beam of light that takes out a bunch of Omu, but it sort of melts uh, in one go. And yeah, sort of by the end, by the end, there once Nausicaa reveals to everyone that. Hey, the toxic jungle is actually purifying the land. We shouldn't get rid of it because it's just going to destroy us once more. Uh, they all come together in a, a nice finale. All right, and that is pretty much what Nausicaa is about. So before we sort of really dig into the, the themes here in the discussion, let's uh, get a feeling of how we, how we came to the film in particular. So Austin, when did you first watch Nausicaa? So, um, I guess generally speaking, I think I've told this before on the podcast, but my first exposure to Studio Ghibli was in uh, 10th grade in high school, 
and my um, English um, English three, English two. I forget. I think this is tenth grade or eleventh grade. Um, teacher, she um, on during our exam week, she showed us um, Spirited Away after we got done with our exam because we had a whole block of time, like three or four hours where we were just doing nothing. Um, and she was like, all right, well, every year I show Spirited Away, so I'm going to show Spirited Away. And then I watched it and I thought, wow, this movie is really weird. I love it. Um, so after that, I got more curious about Ghibli stuff and I ended up borrowing a copy of um, Princess Mononoke from a friend and really, really, really liked Princess Mononoke. Like, that's still probably one of my favorite films of all time, if not my favorite film of all time, not including Mrs. Doubtfire, of course. Um but yeah, that that was my early introduction to Ghibli, and then I sort of slowly crept through their catalog over the next few years. Probably, I, I kind of spaced it out. I wasn't in a mad dash to, like, watch every Ghibli film, because once you watch them all, they're over. There's no more. Um, especially because Miyazaki threatens retirement all the time. And he's, he's, he's 13% yeah. done with his next movie, guys. It's so exciting. Um... But anyway, like I slowly got through the catalog, and I did not watch Nausicaa until my, I want to say my last semester in college. So that was a good few years between when I watched Spirited Away for the first time and then watched Nausicaa, because a friend of mine came over to our apartment, and I told her that we that I hadn't seen Nausicaa, and I think... It was either Bill or our other friend Ryan who was with us, and we all watched it together um, in our apartment. And um, I, I enjoyed it at the time. I don't think I quite appreciated it as much as I did from this most recent viewing for the podcast. I think I appreciated it a lot more. I think there were some things in it that clicked with me better this time, especially Nausicaa as a character specifically, and we'll get into that in a little bit, I'm sure. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, it's very in the vein of Princess Mononoke, so I, I really enjoyed it, um, at least for that, even though I didn't love it at the time. Yeah, that's basically how I saw it for the first time. Okay. And uh, Slay, what about you? So for me, I think the first time I saw it, I did not see it all the way through. It was back when Cartoon Network used to do their month of Miyazaki. And I'm sure there I were like that. times where I like caught it, like caught it midway through or watched it a little bit and then like had to do something else. Um, because that was really my first introduction to Miyazaki in general. The first time I ever saw Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke all the way through was with the month of Miyazaki. And then as I got older, I saw like Howl's Moving Castle and My Neighbor Totoro. But I, I personally never became like a very big fan of Miyazaki. I don't really have anything against him. But I think by the time I was like seriously in big old scare quotes getting into anime, um, the kind of movies I were watching, I was watching a lot of Satoshi Kon stuff. Um, and I think my my sensibility toward anime film kind of drifted towards his kind of stuff. And uh, so I had not watched Nausicaa all the way through until doing it for this podcast. I, I knew enough about it from the snippets I had seen like over a decade ago now, back when they did that, that I had a basic understanding of the plot. Um, but this was my first time seeing it all the way through as a, as a completed product. And, uh, I think it's a film that I would have liked when I was younger, just aesthetically. I think I would have just liked the sort of faux Zelda-ish world. But I think now that I'm older, I'm really like, wow, 
People are crazy. Humans are awful. <laughs> when will the bugs come? Um, and I think now that we've been kind of revisiting so much of Ghibli's stuff, I'm kind of rediscovering the, the stuff that is more for children. Like, I, if you were to ask me what are the Ghibli movies I like, I would probably say Howl's Moving Castle, which I like almost purely aesthetically, because I know it's technically flawed, just put it that way. I would probably say Princess Mononoke because it was the first one I watched all the way through, and I would probably say Porco Rosso because that's the thinking man's Miyazaki. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Hard disagree. Ponyo is for the thinking man. I, I saw, Okay, so me and Austin and Tori saw Ponyo in the theater, one of those like Fathom Events things. I had never seen it before, and I was like, it's supposed to be like The Little Mermaid. It's supposed to be cute. Maybe I'll like it. I hated it. We even recorded a podcast that did not work. Like, the audio messed up, and we just never revisited it. So I can say it here, and I can say it now. I don't like Ponyo. It is very lackluster. No, that's, that's um, really not an unpopular opinion. I know, but I feel like if you say anything against Miyazaki or anything critical, it feels like some sort of sacrilege. And really, my, my personal opinion of the man is, I think he's a very clever, very talented film director, and I think that his his filmography is also somewhat uneven in terms of quality, often based on, you know, the situations that lead to the film's production to begin with. Uh, and again, I can't, I'm very much in a glass house by saying one of my favorite you know, Miyazaki films is Howl's Moving Castle. So I'm completely ready for the Ponyo stands to beat me in the street. <laughs> well, I'm going to take some of that heat off of you. And, uh, yeah, I won't be as down on the man as I usually can be. But uh, I've got some very unpopular opinions on Miyazaki as well. Uh, so starting off, uh, I remember as a kid watching My Neighbor Totoro. I think that's something that people were trying to push as this this crazy new Japanese cartoon movie, and I enjoyed it. It was kind of fun. So wait, wait. You said as a as a kid? Yeah. So my neighbor Totoro, there was a brief push. There had to have been. I, I don't know. Like maybe you can fact check me, but I remember like as a kid, gotta have been like maybe ten years old or something like that. Back in the late eighteen seventies. Like the, even then, my neighbor Totoro was like a thing. They were pushing this as a new. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, Fox released it on uh, on VHS. So, did you like rent it? Is that where you found it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. Yes. I, I remember. I distinctly remember seeing a news story. Like with the news was on, oh, and wow. they were talking about this crazy new Japanese cartoon. It's got to be like Disney on my neighbor Totoro. So, I, I guess we were at a you know movie rental place. You know, back when those things existed, and I remember that and saying, "Okay, this is the thing that I saw. Let, let's rent it." And uh, I enjoyed it. It was okay at the time. Uh, I didn't really think much of it uh, until I think uh, I was in high school. This would have been like 2004, 2005, when uh, a friend of mine loaned me Princess Mononoke on DVD. And I'm pretty sure I fell asleep by the end of the movie. So this is a movie that we're supposed to enjoy. We're supposed to enjoy, you know, to Miyazaki. This is a Ghibli thing. This is a good movie. You're supposed to like it. Eh, Mononoke was okay. I think, uh, I think some of the early... Um, tagline or something they had on the box was like, this is Japanese Star Wars. And I think that was going to get me into it. Like, it's a, a big sci-fi thriller. Well, you know who's responsible for that? It's the fine folks over at Miramax, including the disgraced Weinsteins. 
Yeah, yeah. Just to clarify, uh, fine folks is in major quotations. Yeah, exactly. Air quotes that you can't see. So I went into thinking it was going to be like, uh, you know, a, a, t- a different take on sort of a Star Wars epic. And uh, that it is not, for sure. Uh, so I've seen a couple movies, I think, at Anime Club in college. We did a big showing of Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, I also fell asleep through Howl's Moving Castle watching it then. <laughs> Um, I watched a couple random stuff over time, but Nausicaa I watched just a few years back for the first time. Uh, that was sort of pitched to me as, you know, the, the Ghibli film for the olds, uh, like I am. Tobias, let me ask you a question. So you yes. saw Howl's Moving Castle and you fell asleep. Did you watch the dub? Uh, I honestly don't remember. I'm just saying, this, so you fell movie. asleep while the Lauren Bacall was a voice actress in an anime. I want you to feel that shame. I... You know what? I tried to watch Howl's a few years back. Uh, I think I was like uh, babysitting for some family, some family friends or something. Somebody was going to a wedding and we were babysitting their kids or something. And we put it on and I fell asleep again watching Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> the twice that I tried to watch Howl's and I fall asleep both times. Um, back when I lived in Asheville, the big theater that plays, you know, random movies, they did a Ghibli Fest. I went to go watch Princess Mononoke. Guess what I did by the third act? I fell asleep. I don't know what it is. Like I think the the one thing that um, I can say about Miyazaki is that his pacing is a little off. And Nausicaa it makes sense since it's a manga story. It definitely feels like a movie adapted from a manga in that sense. He's just an artist, man. You just don't understand. I guess I don't, man. Because Mononoke, there's some great moments. and It's a good film. I'm not going to say it's not. But there's something in the third act that puts me to sleep. And Howl's has a lot of weird stuff going on. I don't know, man. To be totally fair i think that sleepy quality of his films is kind of something that a lot of people love about it even though it's like very counterintuitive because you're like you're watching a movie you're not supposed to fall asleep but i think that that can be something that people really appreciate about his movies for sure i think that miyazaki kind of falls into that weird new category of like audio-visual sleep aids that people are getting into, like people who watch Friends every night before they go to bed because they know what's going to happen and it's it's non-threatening and it lulls them to sleep. I, I've known people who'll yeah, just, like, that's valid. put on a Ghibli movie because, you know, it's, you know, it's comfortable, it'll put you to sleep. I mean, I wonder what it says about our generation that we require television in order to have a comfortable sleep cycle. But you know what? I'm not here. I'm not here to judge or to make, like, brash psychological assumptions. <laughs> I do love the idea, though, that, like, Tobias is just, l- like, lulled into the land of sleep by the dulcet tones of Christian Bale as hell. <laughs> I, I don't know, man, and maybe I'm completely wrong. Like, it's just maybe it's just a, a taste thing. But like, by that third act, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I I don't I think I think a problem that I have with Mononoke and with even Nausicaa to some degree is they're just like a little bit too long. They could have cut a scene to smush it up, and I, like I'm ready for the, the I'm ready for the climax, ready for everything to resolve, and they just keep going on stuff that doesn't really again air quotes here matter so much. And again, maybe I'm maybe I'm completely wrong. I don't want to say that uh, he's completely without quality and a bad director. It's obviously not the case, but uh, I don't know, man. Like, I will say, going back and watching stuff now, a little bit older, I have enjoyed. Uh, I did just do that review for Porco Rosso for the website, and I uh, really enjoyed that movie. And it's a shame that that hasn't been talked on the same level as uh, as Mononoke and Spirit of the Way. 
Uh, it may not be quite as deep as those films, but I think that it's it's it's, a, it's just a great movie. I really really enjoyed Pocoroso, uh watching now as a thirty something. I do honestly wonder like how much of it is like a legitimate criticism that anyone could make that uh, Miyazaki as a director or really anyone as a director makes their films too long or uh, lingers on certain scenes or shots for too long, and how much of it is like our millennial brains are so geared towards instant gratification that we have to retrain ourselves. Because as someone who tries to, as someone who tries to watch the cinema from a critical perspective, I've had to like really sit down and be like, is this movie boring? Is this movie too long? Or is, am I impatient? Am I not? Am I not? taking from it what it's trying to give me on its own terms and with nausicaa i actually felt that it for the most part was decently well paced it it clocks in at about two hours um so you know about half an hour longer than most average 90 minute films and i still felt like if i if i were going to make a shorter nausicaa cut i'd maybe cut like 10 minutes and mostly it would be like you said just you know, I get it, Miyazaki. You love the beauty of flying, but, like, I've been in a plane. It's not that great. It's a bus ride with nothing to look at. So, I mean, I get it, but I think for me, I felt Nausicaa was fairly well-paced. I think that it did not feel like two hours. Yeah, it wasn't... I didn't nearly suffer as much as I've suffered while trying to watch Mononoke and Howl's previously. Um, but I do think you have a point that even if it's not a millennial thing, it definitely is a different age of movies that we're not quite used to. Uh, I do, yeah, I, I still haven't really watched a lot of Kurosawa films, but uh, I do recall watching Hidden Fortress a few years back uh, to talk about the Star Wars in Japan panel, and even then thinking that there was there were times when it felt really slow. And again, I know Kurosawa is a very well known director. I don't want to try to say that well, he's, he's terrible too. I just think maybe it's a different expectation, a general generational expectation. I think something that that makes me sort of uh, not care as much is that I know Miyazaki comes at his films from such like a place of appreciating the art of animation in of itself, and I don't think there's anything necessarily detrimental to him just you know using the medium of animation to be like a painter with it, and so that kind of results in some. You know, some scenes that maybe are a little bit longer than they could be to make the tightest story. But, I mean, he's just enjoying the um, the freedom of expression through animation. And for that, I have to respect it a lot. Right. I think sure. we're kind of trained, especially by American films, that shots are a very practical thing, that they are meant to convey information. And once that information is uh, sufficiently conveyed to us, okay, we're done. And I think Miyazaki, it's all about the deep lore. Yeah, and I think Miyazaki comes at it from, like you said, a more painterly, like, you know, I know this shot, you understand, you have gotten all the information that you need for the story or to understand the theme, but however, just look at this as though you were in an art museum watching it and you're just trying to enjoy it on a purely uh, visceral aesthetic level. And I, I see a lot of those sorts of scenes in Nausicaa where it's like, the information is very quickly conveyed, but you want to it's the fetus of the of the giant warrior, the the pulsating veins and stuff are is one of those shots they linger on, and you kind of want to be like, you know, an animator took a lot of time to animate these very complex uh, 
intricate veins and the, the, the feeling of pulsing, which I'm sure is a very difficult thing to capture in hand-drawn animation. Like, there is this sort of, you know, look at this odd, disgusting thing and how much took to to bring it to life on the screen. And another thing is just beyond, like, the language barrier or uh, the time period is the fact that these films are meant to be watched on the big screen, and we are in a pandemic where I had to watch this um, on iTunes on my laptop. Um, and I'm sure if Miyazaki was aware of that, he would be, like, just completely and totally disgusted with me for not appreciating his films as they are meant to be appreciated. But uh, in our current situation, I feel like some concessions hopefully would be made. Well, on the flip side of that, I'm sure Hideki Anno would really appreciate you calling the God Warrior so disgusting. <laughs> he worked really hard on that pulsating beast. Yeah, every time you watch a Ghibli film on a small like iPhone or laptop screen, Miyazaki lights up another cigarette and makes another movie. <laughs> <laughs> These people won't let me rest, man. <laughs> So I put my Castle in the Sky review. If you have a decent home theater set, it is definitely worthwhile to see these films in as close of a replication of that theater experience. You know, if you have a large TV and a, and a dark room you can sit in. Um, but I don't think necessarily, I'm one of those people that I understand the appeal of the theatrical cinema experience, but I don't think necessarily there's a huge detraction uh, watching these films at home. I still think that Nausicaa is a work of art, whether or not it is on a you know, projected movie screen or on a laptop or on a on a home television set. Um, but I do think that there is something to be said about viewing a film on a on a huge screen in a dark room where it takes up all of your concentration, all of your energy, um, all of your focus, and then watching it somewhere else where maybe some of these longer lingering shots don't have that same effect because it doesn't engross you as as thoroughly as a cinema experience does. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I watched Castle in the Sky and enjoyed that. I think I went into that thinking of it, of, a, of, of it more of a painting. I definitely enjoyed sort of the background design, and just the general design of the world portrayed in, in, in Laputa, uh, I think more so than anything else. Well, I guess I'll give Hal a try. Let's go ahead and put it on here at midnight when I'm in bed and see if that works <laughs> out for me. The reason I like Hal is because it's about a blonde pretty boy, a witch... And someone who is a young person who is forced to be like an old person. All three of those things are me. <laughs> I like the scarecrow. It resonates with you. I do like the scarecrow too. <laughs> Well, before we go to get into like uh, talking about you know deeper discussion, let's go ahead and give a uh, 
once over to the voice cast. I think this is really interesting, uh, specifically because, you know, the movie came out in 1984. So the Japanese dub is comprised of of people of that era, people that starred in Lupin III, Urusei Yatsura, uh, Sazai-san and Doraemon uh, to some degree. And uh, a lot of these actors are still acting in films uh, in anime today, uh, the ones that are still alive, of course. But the English dub was recorded in 2005 uh, by Disney. No, it's not the Warriors of Wind dub. We're not talking about that one. Oh, <laughs> well, th- thank you for reminding me about Warriors of the Wind. We'll talk about it here in a second. <laughs> but the actual Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, uh, this definitely feels to me like with the popularity of um, Mononoke and Mizaki getting uh, a, a bit of a, a push, I think... Uh, you know, John Lasseter, who at that point was definitely um, rising in the ranks in Disney and Pixar, probably had a bit of an influence on that. Oh, undoubtedly. So in 2005, uh, Disney dubbed and released it here in the States. So the reason I bring that up is the dub cast is comprised mainly of, of well-known actors. And I think that's also something that I know we've talked about uh, before with a lot of early Disney films or just voice actors. But there seems to be a certain point uh, in the 90s, I think maybe starting with Aladdin, where a lot of their voice casts tend to be well-known actors. Yeah, there was a general post-Robin Williams shift from Disney moving from, you know, stage actors cast in their productions to famous people. I think that's most egregious when you think of Mel Gibson as uh, John Smith in Pocahontas. (laughs) But anyway, that's an aside neither here nor there. (laughs) <laughs> I would say that by casting, I wouldn't call these actors necessarily even like A-list celebrities. I would say that they're well-known and they're, a lot of them are like well-known genre celebrities like Chris Sarandon and Patrick Stewart. Like Patrick Stewart is a very fine actor. He is a, I believe he is knighted. He's a very talented Shakespearean actor, um, but I would not call him, he's not like a Brad Pitt. Um, he and especially when this was Speak for out, yourself, I, man. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm saying there's a difference between like our personal reverence for some of these actors and then like maybe how they are in the public. Um, But I would say that at the same time, like the kind of actors that Disney would cast in these, in these Ghibli dubs also lend this air of, of prestige to the project that we don't really get because a lot of anime dubs are done kind of in the sort of bespoke kind of like the old school Disney where it's like, you know, a lot of people who, you know, do dubs for Funimation uh, and other companies, they have a lot of stage background. Um, their focus is maybe more on voice acting as a particular art, as a, a particular style of acting, as opposed to someone who is an actor who will go in and lend their voice to a project. Um, I think that it gives them this interesting feel when you watch... I, I watched Nausicaa subbed, but I watched Castle in the Sky dubbed because I did remember Mark Hamill was in it. And it's interesting to have a Mark Hamill in this film, because again, Mark Hamill, in a certain point, he was Luke Skywalker, but he was also really more known as a voice, like doing the Joker and doing stuff like this. He was still kind of a, a, a very prestigious genre actor, I think is a good way to put it. And I think that kind of gives it the special feel. Not to say that, oh, non-prestige voice acting is bad. Um, I think people actually do not understand how to properly like evaluate voice acting most of the time but i think that having the name recognition of these actors 
uh, kind of does something to the text that is not necessarily there in the Japanese, because I recognize a lot of the voices in the Japanese, but I think, oh, it's someone from Ursa Yatsura. There is a Time Boken actor in this movie. It is uh, Joji Anami, who is Boyaki and Godaki, and also uh, Kai in Dragon Ball and the narrator. And that's the first thing I think, not, oh, this is some prestigious actor or some well-known celebrity. It's like, no, it's the guy from Dragon Ball. And I think that's a different feeling I get from watching the Japanese subversion versus if I were to watch the dub and be like, oh, that's Patrick Stewart. Oh, that's Uma Thurman. Things like that. Exactly. Yeah, I, I completely agree that it's nice for us to have recognized like Mark Hamill and Patrick Stewart. But honestly, the quality matters less than Disney being able to put those names on the box and to sort of get you this new audience to see you. Oh, this, this Ghibli guy, this Miyazaki guy is pretty important. You should go watch his movies because even, you know, we talk about anime movies now. Um, Ghibli films have pretty consistently come out in theaters for the past 15 or so years. You know, seeing Ponyo in films is a thing you could do in theaters when it came out. Uh, I don't think House was quite at that point yet, but it was it's something they've always pushed is, you know, here's Miyazaki. Let's make sure he's under the Disney name specifically, <laughs> sort of push him for our, um, you know, under our, our label as it were. But not anymore. Well, I think it's wild, too, because uh, one thing that Helen McCarthy writes in her book on Miyazaki is how much she dislikes this idea of, like, he is the Japanese Disney, because I personally also dislike the they are the ex-American thing. Like, they are the Japanese Disney, they are the Japanese whatever, um, because I think it's incredibly reductive to people's artistry, but also... I do not feel like Ghibli films and Disney films, like even the classic Disney films, are really, uh, it's apples and oranges. So we have this constant media push of Miyazaki is the Disney of Japan, and God, how Toy Animation wished they could have got that. <laughs> they wanted that so badly they could have tasted it. Um, and then you have uh, Disney themselves being the original well, not the original, but the the licensors of these films that people of our generation are most familiar with, um, even stocking some of their less famous voice actors. I know that Pat Carroll has a role in My Neighbor Totoro, that's Ursula. Um, she's mostly a stage and uh, character actress. So they they kind of gradually grew into the, the, the well-known genre actor casting as well. And I think that weird like juxtaposition of like Ghibli as a Japanese product versus Ghibli as a licensed Disney product, and now Ghibli as a G Kids and Shop Factory product, and how these films entering America and how we've localized them and dubbed them has kind of changed the our American idea of the I hate to use this term brand identity of Ghibli. <laughs> no, I think that's a I think that's a good way to put it. You're absolutely correct. It seems like. The original sort of push for those films over here, since they were sponsored by Disney, uh, there were a lot of Disney kids that sort of got hooked into it because of that. And there is a oh, extremely uh, so. There is a an air of prestige, whether that's earned prestige or just the 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 way the you know the box art looks, the way the voices sound, that just makes it seem like a prestigious work, like a Disney film. Uh, but I would agree that the films themselves, the contents, do not mesh with Disney for sure. Uh, I just think the comparison is kind of apt when we think of maybe anime as a whole. And like I said, the sort of modern anime studios have maybe watered down isn't quite the best term. But when you look at what Miyazaki was trying to do by making a pure 
uh, a pure kids film every time and trying something that's relatable and human uh, for young consumption is something that Disney's done as well. To say nothing of the fact that both of their work, their bodies of works, are based off of classic children's stories as well. I think it's interesting, though, because Ghibli seems to be more interested in either reinter- like taking the aesthetic or the storytelling tropes of, of classic European literature, and Disney is more interested in sort of this... Uh, I don't want to use sanitization, even though that is a very fair term, but, I mean, Disney really wants you to think that he created Cinderella. Um, I, I was meeting with a friend of mine who is Japanese, and he thought... Disney made up these things. I'm like, no, they are fairy tales. And Disney has very heavily pushed that it is not just Snow White. It is Disney Snow White. You know, the ones that kids love is the Disney version. And I think Ghibli is more like, we want to make original works that take from those sources. I mean, even Howl's Moving Castle, which is based on a novel by a British author, is still very different from the original novel. It's still very Ghibli's own version of it that doesn't feel like it's trying to overtake the original novel as much as I think Disney overtakes its original source material. If you look at Laputa, it borrows so much from like the Victorian boys' adventure-style stories, um, and it, it kind of does those tropes you have the orphan kids, the the high flying adventure, the 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 big stakes, and a lot of that's also just stuff that Miyazaki himself enjoys. Uh, he does love a good orphan, and kind of does its own thing with it. It's not like a direct adaptation of Swift's version of Laputa. It's kind of taking some of the ideas from that. I think you see uh, in one of Patsu's uh, notebooks uh, a drawing of a figure who looks kind of like how the people of Laputa are described in Swift's uh, version of the story. Uh, but Disney, I feel like, is very much into the, like, take the story and then turn it into an IP versus Ghibli, which is very take the story and get the feel for it and then do our own thing. I think Disney wants to add some music to a story. And they can sell you, like, five new catchy songs. That's all they need, bro. That's all they need, bro. Miyazaki is desperately like, I must have my own. Let it go. Just <laughs> <laughs> let it go, you dirty otaku. <laughs> I would give good money to sit in a, in a theater with Miyazaki and have him just give running commentary on Frozen. <laughs> What uh, what about Promare? Watching Miyazaki talk about Promare. Oh my god! Heck yeah! That would be oh lord. I I would I would watch that. You you want to break that man?
And we're back. So let's go ahead and go into, you know, we talk around Nausicaa a lot. We talk a lot about Ghibli, but not about the film itself. So let's go ahead and, and sort of break into that. I know we've, we've just kind of briefly talked about the themes uh, earlier. I think, Austin, you kind of brought that up. So do you want to sort of elaborate on sort of the themes of Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind? So one of the central things that Nausicaa, specifically as a character, and, you know, by extension, the film, really conveys throughout the course of the entire film is is not only this sense of, like, human beings and our harmony with nature and how, you know, if we try and subvert nature or control nature, it will always sort of come back to bite us in the end and end up hurting us because, you know, nature kind of just moves on its own and it does its own thing. Um, it's, it's not only just that, but I think, you know, on a character interpersonal level, one, one of the major themes of this film is sort of, um, it's like bravery and empathy and Mm -hmm. compassion, especially towards things that we don't understand. Like that's one thing that comes through in a lot of Nausicaa's personal interactions with the other characters or with the environment or with the Ohm and with like her little, you know, Fox, Fox, rat friend i forget what what the uh, actual squirrel. animal is fox squirrel fox squirrel fox oh, excuse rat. Me. he's got ratatouille on the mind again <laughs> always thinking about remy but um and that's one thing that i really admired about about this movie watching it the second time around is just nausicaa's personal like she is so she has this immense personal conviction where like she comes into every situation and tries to find the empathetic appeal to other people's humanity and to uh, harmony in every situation and that's how she tries to solve problems and she is very keenly aware of how like people should not be killing each other whenever they have disagreements they should probably talk it out or whatever and if you've got a problem with the forest well maybe burning it down is not the thing that you should do and hey maybe if the fox squirrel bites you that just means he's afraid and he's not actually you know out to get you so she has this sort of like even lord uh yupa early on says she has like this magical quality about her but i mean it may be magical in the sense that like oh my gosh you know wouldn't it wouldn't it be great if everybody sort of acted like that but uh but again it's also not magical because it's something that I think we all have the capacity to do. We all have the capacity to be like kind and brave like Nausicaa. And but and to some extent Nausicaa is a very exaggerated form of that because you know she never really falters and maybe that can be a flaw in her character that she's a little bit too perfect. But again, I sort of see her as like this is a symbol for you know the way that people could act towards each other instead of the ways that we as human beings often like get into conflicts with either each other or nature over, you know, hubris or ego or power or technological might or, or whatever. And I think there's this, this interesting deference to nature that she shows. She always approaches every natural thing as an equal. I think it's interesting that she's always like, 
you know, forgive me, Ohm, or I am sorry, or thank you. She's always making these right. these gestures of gratitude and courtesy towards both the people and to nature. And I think there's, I think the fact that she is so deferential to nature and to the natural world is kind of this idea of, okay, humans tend to view nature as a raw material, as we can use these things to make these things for ourselves. But even Nasca in the beginning of the film, when she takes the eye shield carapace thing from the own uh, carcass, shows this sort of like, I'm so grateful for this. I think this is something wonderful. She's so, um, she views it as sort of part of the contract of life. And then you have the Tolmechians who uh, seem to be this very like industrial uh, military society who come in. We're doing this because we can take it and we can use it. We are resurrecting the giant warrior because we can use it to attack the O. We are doing this because it benefits us, not because we view ourselves as being part of a larger ecosystem, as part of a larger community of the planet. It's because we want it and we will take it. And I think, uh, I mean, that's a very obvious choice. It's kind of a very on-the-nose choice when you have Nausicaa running around being like, I'm thankful, I'm grateful, nature is healing, we are doing what is right. If we just trust nature, the, the toxic trees are actually purifying the water and the soil for us, and if we just go along with it, and then you have uh, Kashana being like, nope, I'm going to you know, resurrect this ancient bioweapon, and I'm going to kill all the bugs, and then I'll take over everything, and we'll be all be great, guys. There is an interesting wrinkle in that, though, that I did notice while watching it, is that Kushana does have a line, I think towards the beginning of the third act, where she says something along the lines of, like, oh, we have to, you know, sort of take control of this, of this, um, of this ancient power before somebody else takes control over this ancient power. So it's like, she's weirdly trying to be at least in her mind, responsible for her people in the sense of like, well, we're going to get this dangerous, no bioweapon so that other people can't get it and therefore use it to attack us. But it's also a very, it's a much more cynical worldview than what Nasca has, where it's just like, maybe you should just leave it in the ground where it belongs. So I do think that that is, that is an interesting way of, of Miyazaki making his quote-unquote villain character more than just like a mwahaha, let's take over the world kind of character. She, she's also driven by, by anger. Uh, she, she lost her hand and possibly more of her yes. body uh, because of the insect. So sure, it's a part of responsibility, but it's also very much this, this revenge, this vengeance she wants to act upon that in the same breath. And the Tolmikians as a whole are kind of just um, in the same way that you mentioned, Nausic is kind of this exaggerated compassion. She's very much a cartoon character to some degree in that you know, this is a fantasy children's story for children in that regard. You know, the Tolmekians as a whole, there's how violent they are. The very first scene, they are, they, they, they end up killing Nausicaa's dad. The very first scene they show up in. And uh, it's very much this, we are in the right. We will take control, um, control by force. And I feel like this relationship between uh, Kashana and the Talmekians and Nausicaa and the people of the Wind Valley, uh, it feels like it's sort of a rough draft for what's going to happen in Princess Mononoke. Um, yeah, very it much is, so. I was watching this, I'm like, huh, it kind of reminds me of the people of the Ironworks kingdom and how it's like, oh yeah, they're not all bad, they're, you know, moral complexity is a thing we can have in an animated children's film. <laughs> 
Yeah, and like San is very much like the angry version of Nausicaa. It's like Nausicaa, you know, they both have a very profound sense of justice, but they just have a very different way of expressing what that means for themselves. Like through San, with San, it's like through. It's it's very aggressive and sometimes of a, a violent way to protect like nature and all that stuff or the forest etc. But with Nausicaa, she does it through like a different way of like showing more kindness. Yeah, exactly. There are definitely some parallels between those two films, uh, you know, thematically and narratively as well. Okay, uh, so I guess if we're sort of talking about the themes. Uh, I do want to bring up something I found that was pretty interesting uh, in that, you know, a lot of people talk about Nausicaa as being a, a feminist work and anti-war work. And uh, Miyazaki himself kind of disagreed with that notion. Uh, translated from uh, Helen McCarthy's book on Miyazaki, uh, he said, I don't make movies with the intention of presenting any messages to humanity. My main aim in a movie is to make the audience come away from it happy. So I thought that was very interesting in the sense that we talk so much about, you know, Miyazaki's common themes. We talk about, his, you know, his, his constant portrayal of like these feminist ideals through all of his movies that brings brought up a lot uh, in both this and in um, Princess Mononoke. You talk about you know, humans interaction with nature. What do you guys feel about his rejection of, of placing themes on his work and placing, you know, these ideas? I kind of take a general skepticism towards a lot of things that directors say about their own work sometimes because i know a lot of artists tend to downplay themselves so it's like i don't i don't know maybe that wasn't necessarily his intention per se but i don't know sully you could probably comment on this much better than i could but it's just like even if it's it was probably one of those things where he did not set out to make like a quote-unquote feminist story but that's that's kind of what he created i mean that might not have been his you know deep intention to create a film that expresses a certain ideology but he does pretty consistently have that own internal ideology of you know women being able to take charge of their own destiny and that is most certainly present in Nausicaa and in a lot of his films. So even if he doesn't come out just straight up and says, ah, yes, I make feminist films, it's like, that's kind of what he makes incidentally anyway. And because he is kind of just like a generally pacifist person and has a whole deal with not liking the military-industrial complex or, you know, military might and weaponry and stuff like that i mean he might not say that he makes anti-war films but i think those themes are definitely present yeah and i think well one this interview was done in 99 and house of castles like what 2003 2004 and he had a lot of things to say about the iraq war when that happened so uh if he says he does not put themes in uh well uh that didn't last very long I think for me, well, one, all stories have themes because that's just like one of, of the requirements of a story to begin with. So we can't say that there are no themes to begin with. The intentionality, I think, is uh, what people kind of ask for. And with that, I guess my thing is like, I feel like a lot of media today is called feminist. And I think there's a difference between a work that has themes which can be seen as aligning with the goals and the values of feminism and a movie that is specifically made to be a feminist statement. 
I have a friend, a colleague in my program who is does ecofeminism um, as her literary study, and I think if I were to show her this movie, she'd be like, yeah, I vibe with this. Um, this very much aligns with my understanding of ecofeminism um, because it's about the environment and it has strong women and uh, the story, It would legitimately the shock me if your friend had not seen this film. I mean, I, I do not think she is one of the weeb kind, so I, I do not know. <laughs> Uh, but I think there's a difference. Let me let me use a really weird example, and I promise if you stick with me, we'll, we'll go somewhere. Here we go. Okay, here we go, here we go. I frequently see people call The Golden Girls a feminist show because the idea is it's about four older women who live together and who talk frankly about their romantic lives and who have lives outside of, like, the expected role of elderly women in American society. It was also a show written almost entirely by straight men. Um, I do not think it is a feminist show in that it is specifically seeking to say something feminist, and it's... And I do not think it is unfeminist because of that. I think there's this idea to say something is feminist because it it align it can easily align itself. I do not think, as Austin said, Miyazaki was like, I have read feminism and I must make a movie. I think he just has this sort of like women are people too. Obviously, why would I not? It, it's sort of a natural right, thing right. for him. It's, it's part of and who I he think, is. And I think that yeah. shows in the film and I think that shows that he... Uh, the the art he creates in many ways aligns with the feminist project, and that's not to say he doesn't deviate. I'm sure if I sat down and I you know went through and looked through Miyazaki's canon, there were probably something that be like, ah, he wasn't feminist there. <laughs> and I think doing that, like trying to say X is feminist, is kind of a reductive argument or a reductive claim. A, a better example I can use is like Sailor Moon. People, especially in the West, are like, Sailor Moon is feminist. I'm like, well, it is a show about women who are superheroes, who it centers their lives and their needs and their their feelings. In Japan, there are people who claim it's not because it's this sort of, you know, mass market, wear makeup, be girly sort of thing. There there are scenes and episodes of Sailor Moon where I'm like, uh, are we watching the same show? Like, there are... There's stuff that doesn't align with, like, the current American Western notion of, like, progressive feminism in this show. Um, I think you're trying to make something you want feminist because feminist now equals morally good. And I think that's what a lot of people try to do with, with films like Nausicaa is, well, it's got a strong female. It's about the environment being good and war being bad. It's a feminist movie. And I think you could say there is a feminist reading of Nausicaa. There is a feminist interpretation. Uh, I think people who identify as feminists will very much so enjoy Nausicaa. Whether or not it was intentionally made as a, a feminist film is up to discussion. That kind of goes into the death of the author. If you know, we disregard yeah. Miyazaki's intention, if we can call Miyazaki the auteur of Nausicaa, that's a whole other can of worms. Is it time um, to kill Death of the Author again? Because that's another one of those literary terms that has been so misused. People don't know what it means, and oh my god. <laughs> Long story short, it's like just taking something as it is and not caring what Miyazaki says it is. You can say, we again, you can read Nausicaa as a very strong eco-feminist work, regardless of whether or not Miyazaki himself created it with that intention or he himself views it as that. 
Um, me personally, I adopt. I adopt. Me personally, I adopt Schrodinger's author. I both care and don't care what they have to say. And I think that's how most people should uh, like assess any text, any film, any book, any TV show. Is it's kind of in the middle. It, it, death of the author is not saying this is how things should be done. At least for most people, it is saying this is a way of looking at a piece of art and and taking its merits in a this is a, a, a frame to view it through and that's how i feel about the 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 statement is nausicaa a feminist movie well it can be um i do not think necessarily miyazaki like i don't think he was like reading judith butler and like god i gotta i gotta get on this guys like I, I, wow who why why haven't we bought the film rights i don't think it was that i think it was miyazaki <laughs> just you know he sips his respect women juice and it just shows up in his art <laughs> if nausicaa is death of the author then princess mononoke is a deconstruction of nausicaa oh! <laughs> <laughs> there are any terms that we're completely lost all relevance i'm a grad student i use fancy words and I don't want to take away anything from like a, you know, if if you read Nasca as a explicitly feminist work, then that is totally fine. I don't want to think that we are trying to make it out to be that it's not that. One, one thing I do sort of want to break into is the idea of the anti-war message. Uh, I kind of have to agree with him here that he doesn't really have an anti-war message. I think he has a pro-nature message. I think he has something to say about nature everlasting humanity. And I think, Austin, you have a bit of an antidote from uh, our master, Lord and Savior, Hideaki Anno, uh, about Miyazaki's feelings on humanity, if you want to sort of give that. For those that aren't aware, the director of uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, Hideaki Anno, uh, he worked on Nausicaa uh, in the early part of his career. He was probably in his mid-20s, like right after right after he graduated from college, and uh, working at Studio Topcraft. He worked on, um, I think he worked on Macross, Do You Remember Love? Uh, he definitely worked on the TV series, but one of the first things that he worked on was Nausicaa, because somehow he and Miyazaki had gotten connected, and Miyazaki was a, really, was a real big fan of his, of his work, and uh, he put him on the God Warrior sequence towards the very end of the film, and if you watch that, you can definitely see some, some Anno-ness in there with just how, like, eerie and creepy it is um definitely some things that he would bring into his animated flow uh later on with uh with evangelion uh almost uh almost a decade later and since then ano and uh, miyazaki have remained like pretty close friends uh they they don't work they haven't worked on much together over the years outside of nausicaa but they have kept um kept in touch and they're they're pretty good friends even to the point where Ano was cast as the main lead in uh, *The Wind Rises*. Uh, Jiro, he plays; he's the voice of Jiro in that film. Um, but anyway, back to what Tobias was saying. Ano <laughs> shares a really funny anecdote that sort of goes back to like, you know, how, how much do we care about what Miyazaki says, or how much what he feels versus like what is show, shows up in his art. He shared this anecdote from the rap party of uh, Nausicaa in uh, one of the interviews that's uh, present on the G-Kids Blu-ray, which I highly recommend uh, checking out. It's an interview with him and Toshio Suzuki. But basically, he talks about being at the Nausicaa rap party, and Miyazaki had a little bit too much to drink, and one of the younger animators came up to him and said something along the lines of, Is it, okay? Is it really okay for the humans to perish? 
on this, for, like, in, in context of, like, talking about Nasuka the film. Like, is it okay if all the humans die and all that stuff? And Miyazaki drunkenly screams, like, of course it's okay for the human beings to perish. As long as there's some creature that stays alive on this planet, there's no problem if humans no longer exist. Which is very, like, kind of a, uh, what's, what's the word, a misanthropic perspective for, uh, for Miyazaki to have and it's especially weird if you look at his movies and see like all of his you know humanist themes that sort of come through you wouldn't think he'd be such a such a downer but uh and then Anno goes on to say that that was the moment he he came to admire uh Miyazaki as a creator and then he called him a bad person <laughs> that's kind of the message that you know, generally speaking, that I got out of this, that nature itself is a indomitable force that one way or another, it will fix itself with or without us. And all this talk of living in peace, this talk of taking over with this industrial strength, you know, even sort of Pegite was uh, sort of in trying to, to, to solve the issue of nature, that it doesn't really matter, that ultimately it comes down to that. And I feel like that shares themes with uh, Mononoke, with, with that aspect of living with nature. So the war just happens to be there, but I don't really feel like it's anti-war so much as it is in, say, Porco Rosso, doing specifically war with historical combat, per se. So one, I think right here, since Uma Thurman plays Kashana in the, in the Disney dub, and she was also Poison Ivy. You should just put her Poison Ivy, I am Mother Nature, I am her will speech right here, right here. <laughs> Drop it in, right here. <laughs> uh, two, I feel like this is less of an anti-war movie and more of a pro-pacifism movie. Um, Pro-not fighting. Yeah, and I, 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 do, I do think there is a difference because as much as, like, Miyazaki has these horrific looking war machines he still also thinks they're really cool looking you can tell he's like very thrilled to have all these really cool flying machines in his film which you know not not to derail you though but i do think that is one interesting thing about nausicaa is that there is a huge emphasis on you know human built technology but miyazaki does not take the stance of you know um sort of whole cloth condemnation of human technology he just shows the different ways that it can be used for benefit and for ill right he's not a luddite uh but i think again this is something that shows up in his next film castle in the sky it is not what technology is by itself it is the choices that humans make when using it um but i think that the continual focus on nausicaa's pacifism she does not want to fight she will do it if there are if there is no other option. She will fight. She will draw her sword. She will she will shoot. But she prefers as little loss of life, as little interruption of the harmony of nature, and as little pain for all living beings involved as possible. And I think that constant return to that is what makes this a film that says, if we were all a bit more pacifist, we could have a better world. It is not only. Uh, a more harmonious relationship with nature. It is the ability to to come together with our fellow man as well, to not be at war. Why must these societies, who are possibly the last human societies left on Earth, why must they be at war with each other? What did they gain from that? What they could gain from working together, as they kind of do in the final bit? They, they're all in the same general vicinity, and they're not killing each other, so that's close enough, right? 
<laughs> All right. So for the next thing, I got a bit of a uh, an experiment for you guys. Let's say it's 1984. You've just seen the movie in theaters for the first time. Let's pretend you speak Japanese or understand Japanese for the purpose of the Sonic experiment. First film you've seen for Miyazaki. Maybe you've seen Kaliostro if you're an anime fan. Maybe not. Where do you see this new up-and-coming director that's already got a bit of a name? Where do you see him going in his career from here? Well, I would have to put it in the context of like what other anime films are coming out in 1984. So, of course, we've got Beautiful Dreamer. So, I would probably be all about my girl Lum. Uh, but, again, important to say like we have Beautiful Dreamer, we have Matt Cross. Uh, I, I think, like, comparing it to those sorts of films, I would be like, wow, there's really this push for this really artistic uh, prestige anime. And as Austin said before, Nausicaa is very much a manga adapted into an, into an anime film. So I think for me, I would be like, this is good, but I don't know if I would be feeling like Miyazaki is going to be this 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 cultural force or rather like a general anime films are going to become more complex more beautiful more intricate as time goes on and i think it's with like castle in the sky and uh the films coming after that where maybe miyazaki becomes a name because i mean even before this castle of cagliostro was decently well received in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. But I think it's you know through repeat screenings and and broadcasts on television that kind of builds to become the castle of Cagliostro. Yeah, it wasn't a it, it wasn't a breakout hit immediately. It didn't do super well at the box office, but it's something that people came around to liking, you know, fairly quickly. Right. So I think I would see uh, Nausicaa as like this sort of uh, it's 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 riding the wave of anime. This anime films that are you know sort of a, a great cinematic product as opposed to oh miyazaki is this this auteur that that it's him it is him alone doing it i think right. you can't really say that when you also have mamoru oshi doing beautiful dreamer and the macross films and stuff like that in contemporaneously with it and there are flaws like watching i was like oh there's bits and pieces where you can tell that the animation could have been better if it had a little more budget and a little more time, because they cranked this out in like nine months, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a few places where I'm like, this is not quite the level of Cagliostro. I think Cagliostro has a little bit better animation in terms of just like fluidity. Um, But I think in terms of design, Nausicaa is kind of, you know head and shoulders above it so i would kind of be like this is the start of a general trend but maybe not a you know i think this miyazaki guy might be the next miyazaki <laughs> really <laughs> awesome what about you what do you how do you feel uh what do you feel this newcomer this up and coming dude what do you think he's gonna do next well i'm just trying to think because at the time in the 80s there was a big push for like sci-fi. Sci-fi was super big, like giant robots, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't know what the anime output for like fairy tales or you know high fantasy was at this time, especially like family-friendly high fantasy. I got to think that it was probably in somewhat of a lull period. 
Well, I mean, there were the the television programs. I think Toei and others were doing like the the world classics theater. Right. Like every episode is a is a fairy tale thing. But in terms of films, I mean, by the eighties, by the sort of early to mid eighties, I don't really think so because most of Toei's like like Hans Christian Andersen and stuff was like the seventies. Right. Um, even that isn't really to the level of like what any of the stuff in like coming out in this period is like you can't really watch even Horace Prince of the Sun and compare it to either Cagliostro or Nausicaa or Castle in the Sky like we're we're kind of light years ahead of that in terms of yeah. theater animation oh yeah absolutely like you you stack up Horace against this film and just visually there's no contest like Nausicaa blows it out of the water but um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I would see this, you know, pr- I'd probably have seen Cagliostro at that point if, you know, I'm a pre-otaku otaku at the time or whatever. Um, and it would it it would have been, even that film probably would have jarred me as being such a huge departure from Lupin Third as we knew it. But also, I, I don't know, I probably would have appreciated Nausicaa existing as sort of like an extremely well-polished, beautifully crafted film for families with a really poignant progressive message and i think i would have really enjoyed that and the fact that it was not based on is like an anime adaptation of a of an original work like it wasn't part of a franchise or anything like that and even so like the manga didn't start like that long before the movie came out like maybe a couple years so it hadn't even really been running that long to say that it's that nasca is like a an adaptation of the manga it's sort of a more of a reinterpretation of the manga or a truncated version of it. Yeah. That's probably what I would have thought, you know, just thinking like, wow, look, this brand new original property that's like a fantasy film with a great message, like, that's for families and doesn't, like, talk down to you. I probably would have been pretty dang impressed. Yeah, I think as for myself, uh, I, I think I was kind of expecting, would have expected in this dream scenario uh, a bit more of a sci-fi influence, more of a technical design sort of influence. So sure, we would see some of that in uh, Castle in the Sky and with Pocoroso. I don't think I would have at that point expected something like My Neighbor Totoro or even the direction he would take later with uh, Kiki's delivery service and Princess Mononoke. That is a really good point because, you know, he does Castle in the Sky after this, which is more of a fairy tale type thing. And then after that, it's Totoro, and Totoro is just like a kind of a wild departure from both of those films. In a lot of ways, some of you know, Castle in the Sky is that sort of beautiful design, but it's got a lot of like the same comedy as in Cagliostro, with that uh, sort of that, that gang yeah. that, that hunts down the main characters throughout. The Dola gang. Yeah, so there's a thread of Cagliostro and Castle in the Sky, but also sort of the direction he's taking. Uh, from Nausicaa. So I think, you know, in this dream scenario, I definitely would have expected him to continue to go down a sci-fi fantasy, Lord of the Rings, Dune sort of thing, rather than uh, what he kind of did. I will say one thing I've kind of taken from this is I really want to read the manga now, because I know Me that, too. you know, it was kind of a, he kind of wrote it as he felt like it, or as he had time to do it. Um, and it was, there is more of the story of Nausicaa than just we see, uh, here in the film. So I really, I really kind of want to check it out. It seems like, this seems like something I would maybe enjoy more as a manga. I mean, I enjoyed the movie. I'd give it a good 8 out of 10. Um, but I think I would probably get into it more reading it where I can kind of go at my own pace and kind of, uh, feel more immersed. I, 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 there's something about manga that feels like, 
It's like, I'm the director of the movie. I'm the Miyazaki. (laughs) Yeah, pacing's not a problem because you get to decide your own pacing by your reading speed. So whenever they were planning this film, again, this was like very, very much towards the beginning of Miyazaki starting to write the manga that it was based on. So obviously they didn't have an ending for the story yet, but they had to come up with one for the purposes of the film. And um, Suzuki, Takahata, and Miyazaki all sort of came up with three options. So option number one was at the very end of the film... Uh, Nausicaa rushes towards the stampeding ohm and she stops the stampede and basically the movie ends right there. Their second option was Nausicaa stops the stampede but she dies and then she essentially becomes like a martyr type figure, maybe even like a demigod type of person that like just transcends into legend and she becomes like the legendary Princess Nausicaa who sacrificed her life to save us from the forest bugs or whatever. Uh, And then the third ending was actually the one that they went with in the film, which is um, she rushes the ohm and she, she dies quote unquote, or gets, you know, injured. um, And then the ohm bring her back to life with their power and they sort of reconcile and, she uh, and the the people of the of the Valley of the Wind reconcile with the Ohm as well as the uh, other Imperial forces, uh, Kushana's army and etc. And everybody lives happily ever after, as far as we can tell. Um, they ended up going with the third ending because that's what Suzuki and and Takahata thought would be the best option, probably because it makes the most sense and isn't as much of a downer. And uh, in the interview with Ano, uh, Suzuki talked about it, and they said that really Miyazaki didn't have much of a pushback on that. He was just like, "Well, if that's what you guys want to do, that's what we'll do." Um, so I, I found that interesting. But uh, out of those three endings, like, what what do you guys think? Do you do you think the ending that they went with is the one they should have? I will say that I do think the the ending they chose is the best of all three options. Um, it, it really does bring the film to a perfect narrative closure for me. And I think I I felt very satisfied with how the film ended um, compared to the other two options where I feel like I would have felt like either it's too much of a downer or I don't really feel like it feel like it kind of would have ended too suddenly. Right. Um, But as it ended and with the sort of post credits, like the the scenes about like the the new tree growing in the forest and the sort of renewed hope and the people coming together. I like that. Mm -hmm. However, that's just because those are my options between three. If I were going to end the film, what I would do is I would have Nausicaa, uh, you know, stop the bugs and everything's great. And then she comes back to the village and she starts doing the futter walking, uh, that dance that the Mad Hatter does <laughs> in that terrible live action Disney movie. And then everyone has like a huge dance party, like the old ladies break dancing, get the donkey from Shrek in there somewhere. Oh. Like that's how you end a movie in Miyazaki. You need a huge 
cast the thousands dance party with the Futter walking and a talking donkey voiced by Eddie Murphy. That's and Smash how you Mouth. And Smash Mouth. Have Smash Mouth in <laughs> Valley of the Wind <laughs> costumes. Like, come out and sing All Star. Like, Nasca high fives them. <laughs> End of movie. Cut, print. I'll take my million now. Lord Yupa dab. Patrick Stewart as Lord Yupa says, Hey kids, dab on this. <laughs> <laughs> dab on the haters. Dab on the ohm. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, that's the end of the podcast right there. <laughs> I mean, that is the peak. You can't get any better than that. <laughs> well, uh, my take, less, uh, less awesome take, is that, uh, yeah, no, I agree that the, the ending they went with is the best. Uh, it, it matches more closely with the theme of getting along with nature. So, of course, that's been Elska's done the whole movie, so she does it at the end. Uh, and, of course, the whole prophecy they talk about sort of makes a, it makes a really cool visual scene of her, her fulfilling the prophecy. I think it would have been interesting whether than her fulfill the prophecy for her, her figure, her legend to be added to the mythology and then to talk about a hundred years later when one of the little girls is the new old woman, the new Obaba. And they talk about, you know, the princess and as a historical sort of figure. I do hope that they uh, go back to that tapestry and, uh, so, the chosen one as a girl and not a 40 year old white Jesus looking man that it was, <laughs> yeah, which, yeah. uh, that, that was, yeah. a, that was just an interesting, you know, detail. Cause he's, the the vaguely Assyrian looking. Yeah, the the savior in blue is portrayed as like a uh, a uh, a dashing bearded man, but it ends up being you know Nasca, which is you know it's pretty transgressive in its own way. I want to point out something: a hero in blue, a legend. A hundred years time has passed. I'm just saying. <laughs> Breath of the Wild is over here desperately copying Nausicaa's notes. I thought you were going to say Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh my god, don't make this anymore. Sonic the Hedgehog shows up in my ending. <laughs> just bring it out full circle. <laughs> Sonic of the Valley of the Wind is going to be the next game in the franchise. It's going to have a little fox squirrel as your, as your sidekick in this game. A two-tailed fox squirrel, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right, so before we get into audience questions, let's do our iconic, our favorite scene. Uh, so, uh, Sully, you go first this time. You, uh, What is your number one scene? I feel like the scene that has stuck with me the most is when the, the giant warrior, like, comes up from the ground and starts disintegrating. I think that's just the image that has just kind of stuck with me. Like, it's less scenes that have stuck with me and more just iconography, like the design of the ohms, the the dress of the villagers, the various scenes with them flying. I think I also really enjoy, I take it back, but I think the scene I enjoyed the most, less of a visual thing and more of a storytelling thing, was when she switches places in the brig plane with the girl and the person who was the mother of the princess who died in the beginning of the movie. I really enjoyed that. Like, and everyone from uh, that country is like, we, we are with you. We're sorry that it's come to this and we support you. Like that was just really like chef's kiss. I loved it. <laughs> awesome. What about you? I think for me, it'll, the most iconic scene from the whole film will always be the intro where she's going through the the cave and going to find the ohm shell just cuz the whole aesthetic of that is just unforgettable like just the beautiful like um fluorescent blues and 
just the, the just the beautiful color design and the soundscape and just watching her walk through and like softly interact with the um the spores and everything in there talking to herself it's just such an iconic scene it's i mean that that's always just gonna stand out for me always yeah i agree there's a, a lot in this movie that is just uh very well shot uh very well composited uh i think sort of one thing that this stuck in my mind as I watched it last night. It was, I think the, when they're in the sky and she's in the Tomekian uh, ship and then Asbel shows up to shoot him down. There's a point where she sort of gets up in the front and sort of holds mm-hmm. her arms out and tells him to stop. And she, he does kind of swerve and there's like a picture shot where he does swerve and you kind of see it from a low, a low perspective, the camera placement and sort of just the action itself, I think, kind of stood out to me as something that was very distinct from what we see in the rest of the film. And uh, something that does show certainly a mastery of framing uh, from Miyazaki, even here. Okay, so to go ahead and wrap it up, we have uh, some audience questions. Uh, as usual, one audience, a billion questions <laughs> from uh, our uh, your friend of the family, Basil, of the Awesome Cast. Love you, Basil. <laughs> so, question number one. Ever watch Warriors of the Wind? No. Nope, never seen it. I'm told it's not worth it. I would watch it, like, for a Mystery Science Theater night. Like, if we're just us, like making fun of it because i've heard it's terrible but like other than that (laughs) not really i watched the trailer for it like the vhs trailer for it Mm. for this wasn't good i I went on youtube to sort of see if i could find snippets of it just to sort of peruse rather than watch the whole movie and literally all it is is the trailer that's only mentioned and a bunch of reaction videos of YouTube shouty men that are just telling you how terrible Where's the Wind is. And they do this very bombastic, overblown, you know, it's so terrible, so awful, it's the worst thing ever. It's like, just give me a little bit of taste of what this is. I don't need your reaction. See, that's why I said that we should do a Mystery Science Theater night, because one, I don't overreact, and two, I'm actually funny. <laughs> All right, so question number two. Uh, so is 1984 when Miyazaki peaked or what? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, his early career up until, I mean, personally, I think um, one, after after Spirited Away, he sort of kind of to go on the downhill. But I think from Cagliostro to Spirited Away, all of his things are like very unique from one another. Like, the only thing that feels like, and this is, this sounds more harsh than it should, but the only thing that really feels like a retread is Princess Mononoke, where he feels like, it feels like he's revisiting Nausicaa, but in a very, in a different way. But it's like, everything else is super unique. Like, 
Totoro is really not like Kiki's, which is not like Porco Rosso, which is not like Cagliostro. So I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think he peaked in 84. I mean, I think, I think Miyazaki's peak. Well, I don't think Spirited Away is necessarily my favorite film. I still really, really like it. Um, I, I don't think it would be fair to say that Nausicaa was his peak, even though it's still very good. Uh, as for me, I will say, I think peaked is a strong word here. I don't think, if you look at the quality of the art and the animation, if nothing else, um, he definitely has gotten better over time, uh, for sure. To what I agree, the Spirit of the Way is certainly a fantastical visual feast, if nothing else. Uh, That's something Nausicaa can't exactly claim. Uh, I do think I that Nausicaa is a lot better film and really underappreciated. I do think uh, if you're a Ghibli nerd, you absolutely have to watch this. I certainly one of my my favorite of his movies for sure. Uh, I like the the style, the fact that it came from his original manga that it sort of comes from himself rather than being an adapted work. I think uh, hits harder for me to some degree, and just the aesthetic and everything about it. I, I really like this film. Uh, I don't think I could fairly say he peaked. But I do think it's one of my favorite Miyazaki films, I should say. I would say that Miyazaki peaked on January 5th, 1941. (laughs) His birthday? (laughs) It was all downhill from there, and I think he would agree with me. Uh, No, I think seriously, I... I don't know if I would if I would be able to say when he peaked because I've watched his films so out of order and so much on sort of my own whims. I mean... In terms of quality that most people could agree on, and from an artistic standpoint, I would say, yeah, Spirited Away is, like, the pinnacle. Like, that is the, the, the peak Miyazaki. And even though I enjoy Howl's Moving Castle, I can't say that it was not a step down in quality and that it wasn't downhill from there. I don't like Ponyo. And, like, even though I have enjoyed other Studio Ghibli movies, I don't find myself looking forward necessarily to what he's going to create next. I mean, I'm not saying he should stop. I I just, for me, it's like, if it turns out to be, if it turns out to be good, I'll be happy, but I'm not necessarily expecting it to live up to the expectations set for films like Nausicaa, Castle in the Sky, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke. Like, I think it's one of those, I feel like these are films that are also kind of tied to when they were made. I don't think you, you, you can't make a film like Nausicaa anymore uh, for a variety of reasons, both artistic and technological and cultural. Plus, if you, if you made a, if you made a film like Nausicaa now, it would feel derivative because Nausicaa was so influential. Like, we didn't even discuss, like, well, we kind of touched on how influential it is on The Legend of Zelda, but it was also hugely influential on Final Fantasy. So it has a, a and JRPGs in general. Um, it freaking is homaged in uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. So yeah, you're right. And for for many for many reasons like that, you you couldn't make a film like Nausicaa today. I think that's one thing that I love about Miyazaki is that his his influences are so clear. Like this is so much Dune, Lord of the Rings. Uh, it, it's so much that. But it's still so good and so original that other people are going to look to it and be like, this is mind-blowingly creative. Let's take from it. Like, Miyazaki has this amazing talent to take things from the past and then turn them in such a way that people take from him, um, which I think is 
something a lot of artists struggle with. I mean, how many series have we read where it's like, okay, I get it. I know you watch the thing. You watch the <laughs> thing. You like the thing. We like the thing too. We don't have now, to. Are talking you talking about, about the John thing. Carpenter's The Thing? <laughs> Miyazaki's The Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would watch Hayao Miyazaki's The Thing. Hayao Miyazaki's John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think. I, I don't think that Miyazaki peaked in 1984 and that this. Uh, Basil, this is low hanging fruit. Come on now. <laughs> Basil. Basil. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, the next couple questions he has are regarding the manga, but it sounds like none of us have actually read the manga. But it sounds like at least me and Austin want to read it. Yep. Yeah, I would I would agree. It's been on my sort of to-read list for a while. I think, if nothing else, there's the sheer world-building of the movie. It's got me interested to see where I came from. I, I really haven't gone back and seen Miyazaki's. Like, occasionally I'll see like a, a tank or something he drew, I think, for anime at some point. But uh, looking at some of this printed work prior to these movies has always really given me this sense of wonder, a sense of creativity, and I have sort of meant back. He's a beautiful illustrator as well as an animator. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think I was in a comic shop shop uh, like a year ago, and they have this ridiculously huge, like almost gilded version of the Nausicaa manga. It's this huge book that is heavy, a hardcover. That I think it's got like everything collected in one volume. It is ridiculous <laughs> that such a thing exists i think it was like 200 bucks so yeah i didn't buy it at that point but uh, i am interested in checking it out at some point and uh, i think this is uh this last question could be kind of interesting uh maybe not your favorite moment of the film but were there any moments that hit you in a way that you were not expecting so at the beginning of the film when nausicaa is in the the sea of decay and she finds the the own carcass uh, she takes gunpowder and, like, sprinkles it around the mm. eyeball, and then she, like, lights it with a, with, a, with a charge from her gun, and it just pops off. And I was just like, can you do that? This, is that help? Is that help? <laughs> Science works? Because it just comes off neatly and perfectly, and then, like, when she takes it to the village, all these kids are, like, playing with it, like, it's like a window from, like, a bubble car or something. And I was just like, is that how gunpowder work? Can you can you do like a Looney Tunes like circle and like make it fall perfectly? Like is that is that how that works? So yeah, that's not a good answer, but that's the one I'm going to give you. I'm also going to give a not so great answer and say the one thing about this movie that hits me because it's not there is Ghibli food. There is no Ghibli food. When when Miyazaki brought this film back into the Ghibli corral, when he kind of you know, made it into a Ghibli film, I'm sure he was like, should we add food? Should we do that? Should we put the stamp on it and make it official? Well, I don't think Miyazaki actually started eating until 1987, so it might just have been too early. Yeah, he was a late adopter. <laughs> uh, I think for me, Jesus, uh, I had a really good one. Oh, you guys made me forget about it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I think, honestly, the point where uh, the Tomeki show up and kill her dad, and Nausicaa jumps in there, and she just goes crazy and starts killing people. Um, I think we think of, like, fantasy stories, very generic fantasy stories, just killing the bad guys is no big deal. It's just you take your sword, and you hit them a couple times, and, and they're gone. But the way this film does focus on violence as a thing, and the fact that 
even a scene later, she's like, she breaks down in Yupa's arms that she just killed a bunch of dudes. The way that it focuses on how destructive that is, I think was very mature for being like a film like this. Yeah, and that's a great scene that I had totally forgotten about because it shows that like, you know, Nasuka makes a mistake, but then she realizes like after the fact that it's just like, I did not live up to my expectations for myself and then that's sort of why she broke down and then tries to do better um towards the for the rest of the film yep absolutely all right well that kind of wraps us up uh you guys have any closing thoughts before uh we sign off if you for whatever reason have not seen nausicaa of the valley of the wind yet i highly highly recommend it i think we all feel about the same way and it's pretty easy to pick up these days. You can get it on Blu-ray from Shout Factory and G-Kids. It's also available digitally from a variety of digital retailers. And yeah, just uh, go watch it. And the manga is also available in the U.S. I think it's published by Viz. And I think I think that you can get it either in that super gilded special edition thing or just like regular volumes. But don't quote me on that. The big one is definitely available, though. I would say it's definitely a film worth checking out, if only because this is where it starts, folks. This is this is kind of the, the beginning of Miyazaki. I mean, we do have Cagliostro, but that's him working within another person's uh, creative world. This is him kind of becoming what we would know him as. And I, I think it's a film that holds up. I mean, you can't really say a film where people are like, don't go outside without your mask is not relevant in the year of our Lord 2020. Ain't that the truth. It's, it still holds up. I think it's also just beautiful to look at. It's it's not a perfect movie, but like I said, a good 8 out of 10. It's it's a way to kill two hours. It's a good way to spend an afternoon. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. If you haven't already followed us, you can do so uh, through our website, thirdimpactanime.com. Uh, we have links to our Podbean account that has the uh, podcast episodes themselves. You also can, of course, subscribe to our podcast through whatever podcast or service you use. We are on um, on iTunes. We are on Google Play. Uh, whatever service you use, you can find us at Third Impact Anime Podcast. Uh, they're called Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts now, old man. Okay, yeah. Earcasts? Ear your cast, my cast, our cast. They're called Netflix Original Podcasts. <laughs> All right, uh, Austin, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me most easily over on Twitter at BebopShock. You can also find me streaming video games very sp- sporadically over on Twitch, and that's twitch.tv slash BebopShockInfinite. Sully, what about you? You can find me desperately reaching for the bug spray on Twitter at Kalvakun. That is C-A-L-V-A underscore K-U-N. I have also become a contributor for Yadatachi, and you can read my first article, an introduction showcase to Japanese film, on their website. Look out for my next articles, if they take them. God, I hope so. Please read the things I write. This is all I have, folks. It's all I have. He needs those clicks, kids. I need the clicks. I need the clicks. I need the engagement. I need the other social media terms I haven't bothered to learn because I'm secretly like 87. Like Tobias. And uh, yeah, we, we are, we're all big fans of Yadatachi here as well. You know, technically check their site out. They are good people that do good work. And we are glad for sure to have uh, Sully uh, be present on their site as well. Uh, as for myself, you can also find me on Twitter uh, at Reverend 
underscore Tobias. And with that being said, I want to thank you guys for listening, and you have a great evening. Don't bug out. Thank you.